Matthew chapter 2, please. Matthew chapter 2. The uh, series I'd like to walk through with you in this Christmas season is right here in Matthew chapter 2, the first 12 verses, and it is entitled The Wisdom of Christmas. The wisdom of Christmas. Today we're going to look at a definite purpose in the first two verses. But let's walk through the whole text together. I'm going to read to you from Matthew chapter 2, 1 through 12. And in the translation I've known and heard most of my life, and probably you too, uh, this is the King James Version that I read to you this morning. Now when Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, behold, there came wise men from the east to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he that is born king of the Jews? For we have seen a star in the east, and are come to worship him. When Herod the king had heard these things, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And when he had gathered all the chief priests and scribes of the people together, he demanded of them where Christ should be born. And they said unto him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for thus is written by the prophet, And thou, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, art not the least among the princes of Judah, for out of thee shall come a governor that shall rule my people Israel." Then Herod, when he had privily called the wise men, inquired of them diligently what time the star appeared. And they sent, and he sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and search diligently for the young child. And when ye have found him, bring me word again that I may come and worship him also. When they had heard the king, they departed. And lo, the star which they saw in the east went before them till it came and stood over where the young child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced with exceeding great joy. And when they were coming to the house, they saw the young child with his mother, with Mary his mother, and fell down and worshipped him. And when they had opened their treasures, they presented unto him gifts, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And being warned of God in a dream that they should not return to Herod, They departed into their own country another way. Heavenly Father, as we uh, open up your word here today and reflect upon several of these things, we are so familiar with the Christmas story, and yet at the same time, it captivates our attention. Because it's more than just a holiday. It speaks of our Savior and what he has done for us. And I pray, Lord, this morning that uh, our attention will be Put upon this text in the way that honors your name, honors your word, and encourages us too. Uh, We thank you, Lord, for this message of the Christmas season. May we be those who know it well and relate it to others too. We'll pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Now, I was reviewing uh, my Christmas sermon series. And I could do that pretty easily now just by going on the internet to our webpage and just type in Christmas and sermon search. And there's lots of them there. And I could trace back to what the series was last year and the year before, the year before, and all those are in there. And I noticed that I haven't spoken on the wise men for over six years in the morning service. 
Now I have a little bit here in the evening service, uh, but most of the, the time has been spent in Luke chapter 2 or John or some other passage, but I just thought, I need to balance that out a little bit and spend a little bit of time in Matthew today. I have been preaching on the Christmas story for 33 years now, and uh, it's not my goal, it's not my even, even my ability to improve upon the message that's given to us in Scripture. I don't do that. I don't want to do that. I only seek to express what God has first said. And that's why when we go into this text, some people say, well, where's all the pizzazz? Where's all the interesting things that you could attach to this? I just, I think the story itself is just captivating to my heart to read of my Savior and what he did for us here. I am aware in our particular society and time that the facts of the message of the birth of Christ is not as well known as it used to be. It's just not. In a way, the Christmas story has kind of been lumped in with all the other explanations of Christmas. Uh, True or false, as they are, most of them false. (laughs) But uh, many of those things have even overshadowed uh, the things that we speak of here at Christmas time. I am concerned about our children and our grandchildren, and I know you are too. Growing up in a world that is intentionally ignorant of Scripture and the truth of this season. Uh, I'm not going to moan and groan this morning. That would be easy to do. But I'm not going to do that. The whole thing has moved so far away from the truth And we say it's been overrun by commercialism. Uh, Charlie Brown said that too back in the 1960s. (laughs) So that's nothing new. Uh, But if you were to take a child uh, and you started to talk to them about anything, you would notice that they do ask a lot of questions. And it's generally not what, but it is why. Why, why, why? It was always the duty of a a Jewish father at the Passover time to answer those questions when the the youngest son would say, why do you do this? Why do you do this? Why do you do this? I think we should prepare our hearts and prepare our minds to be able to answer why this year. If we're asked by anybody, why do you celebrate this holiday? Why is it so important to you? Let's have a reason. Let's go back to the wisdom of it all and be able to answer these things um, because that's what the, the series is all about. To answer a why, why, I've entitled it The Wisdom of Christmas. And who better to ask why than ones we have labeled as wise men. So, we're going to put on some child shoes here for a few minutes. I know it might squeeze the toes a bit. But let's look at the story as they would look at the story and ask the why questions a little while while we're here in Matthew chapter number 2. Because today the personalities of Christmas are Charlie Brown and Snoopy, Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer, Frosty the Snowman, the Little Drummer Boy Santa Claus, the Grinch, the Nutcracker, an elf on the shelf, and the one that's really dominant in some places is this gnome thing. I have no idea what a gnome has to do with all that. But I was in the st- we were in the store yesterday, and I just saw all this gnome stuff. And I thought, okay, 
Some of us older folks, though, have a different idea. I mean, we think Christmas is being Crosby, rocking around the Christmas tree. Uh, am I going back too far? I'll be home for Christmas. You're going back to World War II. Um, secular radio stations have so many Christmas songs in their repertoire, they don't even need to play spiritual songs anymore. Because there's so many that are not spiritual. If, if you don't think that's true, go to Walmart and shop for an hour. And listen to what they play over the speaker uh, and see if I'm right on that. But I'm going to repeat the question Charlie Brown asked a long time ago. Isn't there anyone who knows what Christmas is all about? Let's step into God's Word here, all right, and get the correct answer to our question. Verse number 1 and 2 today. Now when Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, behold, there came wise men from the east to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he that is born king of the Jews? For we have seen his star in the east and are come to worship him. A little explanation of the setting. All right, we're going to work our way to the main core here as we go. The, the part of the story of the birth of Christ records that uh, Jesus was born before the wise man came. You just saw that. It stated, it stated in a simple fact, now when Jesus was born, there came wise men. In verse 2, they were already looking for a baby that was born, right? They weren't saying, where's the preg pregnant mother? But they were looking for a child that was already born. Now, I can't tell you how many weeks or days or months or years that is between the actual birth of Christ and when that is. There's nothing in Scripture that qualifies it carefully except for the fact that Herod had all the children who were under the age of two slain just so he could make sure that Jesus was one of them. That's all I know about it. The rest I don't, and Scripture doesn't tell us that, and sometimes uh, I just have to remind myself I wasn't there. Another fact we run into here is that Jesus was born in Bethlehem. That's where the tribe of Judah and all was about, and that's where he was born into that Judean tribe, the tribe of Judah. Uh, but the wise men's first stop was not in Bethlehem, was it? We see in the text something so simple. They came into Jerusalem, which was about six miles away. If you check that on your map in the back of your Bible, you'll notice it. You say, whoops, they missed. Well, no, God had intentions for that. But they came to Jerusalem. We also know from the text that there was a king involved. A wicked king, by the way. They had no concept of the value of human life. More times than not, we just read his name, Herod, and we go on by. Uh, rarely do we finish the rest of the chapter when we talk about the Christmas story. Uh, we don't talk about what he did to the children in the Bethlehem vicinity. Um, but uh, Herod the Great, you almost need a, a button in your Bible that goes, boo, whenever you hear that name. This man was wicked to the core. He came to rule as appointed by Julius Caesar in 47 or so B.C. He was recognized as a king, though he had different titles that worked him up to that. And he somewhat gained that title by terrible threats 
to anyone who would question his authority. This little quote I read to you is not pretty, but this is a comment I read um, about him. The terrible acts of bloodshed which Herod perpetrated in his own family were accompanied by others among his subjects, equally terrible from the number of who fell victim to them. According to the well-known story, he ordered the nobles whom he had called to him in his last moments of life to be executed immediately upon his decease so that at least his death might be attended by universal mourning. Now, there is much I'm going to leave unsaid, all right? Uh, But you have the basic idea. This is one wicked man. And when we read his name in Scripture, it's not that God is standing up and saying, hey, here's a man to exemplify. It's not that at all. It's necessary to understand how even Satan used people, intensely wicked people, to try to eliminate what God was doing. If Herod had had his way, we always say if, because it didn't happen. If Herod had had his way, the story would have ended right about this time. That's the wicked man we're going to see here. Okay, that's some of the elements we have here. Go back to verse number 1. Now, when Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, behold, there came wise men from the east to Jerusalem. All right, the two essential parts of our story here today, with that kind of a background, is to understand, number one, Jesus was born. Is that important to the story? I would say so. Jesus was born. The whole purpose of the gospel story has in that Jesus is born. And the wise men who were so intensely interested in his birth came from a long distance to see him. I use the term wise men. We've read it several times here this morning. The King James records it uh, It's been in our vocabulary for a long time. I want to take just a moment to trace those individuals with you, just by their title. If you just follow the English Bible, which you know I like to do this, uh, go back to the very earliest translation, John Wycliffe in 1390. He called them astronomers. When the astronomers came... uh, The Living Bible, by the way, you say, well, that's ancient. But the Living Bible, which is more modern, also calls them astronomers. And I think, boy, this is an interesting thing. Tyndale, in 1526, when he first recorded his English translation, he called them wise men. And so did Matthew's translation just after that, Coverdale's translation, the Bishop's Bible, the Geneva Bible, the 1611 King James, the original one, all the way into the 1800s and the revised version of 1880s or so, the American Standard Version of the early 1900s, and most of the translations all the way through the 20th century and now into the 21st century still use that term, wise men. More than likely, it's in the Bible you're carrying right now. If you've got an ESV or NASB or a Lexum or a Legacy. No, not a Legacy. Hang on. The Legacy Bible is one of the newest, and they're using the term Magi. Which also the NIV does, if you're carrying one of those. You've got the word Magi there. And you're saying, well, that must be different. Well, that comes all the way back from the Latin Vulgate. In 382, they put Magi. 
So these terms have been around for a long time. And only Matthew is the one that records the story. Only Matthew tells us the information we can glean from this about these men. And so if our limitations are here, we've got some issues with maybe the way we portrayed them for years. One is that many people think there were only three of them because there are three gifts, right? Gold, frankincense, and myrrh. So they say, well, that's how it is. But if you were to live across the seas in some of the eastern countries over there, you would believe, as they do, there were 12 of them. I don't know where they get that unless it's like 12 disciples or a dozen fits in an egg carton better. I don't know what it is. But they say there's 12 of them. I don't know where they get that. I don't know why we have three. But that's just the way the Bible doesn't tell us either way. Uh, By the way, they also have given them names. Not the twelve, but the three. The three, according to this tradition, is Melchior, he's from Persia, Casper, uh, or Gasper, or Jasper, depending on how you want to pronounce it in some places. He was from India, and Balthazar was a Babylonian scholar from Ethiopia. Where did we get that? We have no idea. Somebody came up with names, probably it just fit that you got to have three kings and you have little kids playing those parts. you got to call them by something. You don't say King One, King Two, you, you give them a name, right? Good thing they don't do it today. I can't imagine the names they'd pick for these guys today. Tradition also calls them kings. Kings. We even sing a song that way, don't we? We three kings of Orient are. And you may say, well, that's not what the Scripture says. Right now we're dealing with magi or wise men. Where do you get the idea of kings? Uh, This is where they get it. Isaiah 60. I'm going to read you a couple of verses. Isaiah 60, 3, 4, 5, and 6. Nations will come to your light, and the kings to the brightness of your rising. Lift up your eyes round about and see. They are all gathered together. They come to you. Your sons will come from afar, and your daughters will be carried in their arms. Then you will see and be radiant, and your heart will thrill and rejoice, because of the abundance of the sea will be turned to you. The wealth of the nations will come to you. A multitude of camels will cover you. The young camels of Midian and Ephrath, all those from Sheba will come. They will bring gold and frankincense, and they will bear good news of the praises of the Lord." They say, aha, there it is. Camels are even there. So if your nativity set has camels, it's okay, right? But here's the thing. Contextually, he's talking about the millennial kingdom, not about the first coming of Christ. This is yet to happen. But that's okay. That's what they're doing in tradition. They just pick out things and say, must be camels there, must be frankincense, must be gold, must be silver. We got all that in the text, so let's call them kings too. But what we really know about the word, what Matthew uses in the Greek text to describe them, is magos. Guess what that's close to? Magi. Magos. It's a Persian term. It means astrologer. It means magician. According to Strong's Concordance, it's an oriental scientist. 
Sometimes they call them sorcerers, and we've got funny concepts of that, but they also call them wise men. And it's really not hard to match them up in Scripture if they are linked to what we think, the story of Daniel. When you go back to the story of Daniel, you find him in the courts of Nebuchadnezzar. Daniel was the leader among the wise men that served the court of Nebuchadnezzar. His job was to give advice to a king and also to interpret dreams. And if it wasn't for Daniel, there would no longer be wise men in our world today because Nebuchadnezzar threatened to exterminate them several times. And Daniel was the one who was able to answer the dreams that they could not do. They're not very good at their job, so don't hire one. All right? They just, the record was not good. Um, But we also say, okay, is that the group? Because if that was about Daniel... And about his time, there would have been influence about Jewish things, and perhaps uh, some of Daniel's records might have been of interest to them, and they might have carried on to understand and to seek out who is this king who's born of the Jews. Maybe, maybe. We don't know the rest of that story. Uh, some people say, no, no, it goes back even further than that. You've got to talk about the story of Balaam. Remember Balaam? He had the donkey that talked, right? Uh, Balaam was hired by the king of Moab to come in and curse Israel. And there's a lot of great parts of that. Numbers 22, 23, 24. I, I laugh all the way through it. I just, that's me. But every time I read about it, he, Balaam was asked to curse them. He'd get up there and instead of a curse, he'd give a blessing to Israel. On three or four occasions, it came out that way. And uh, that made the king madder and madder, the Moabite king. But uh, among the things that he said, in Numbers 24, verse 17, he said this, I see him, but not now. I behold him. He's not near. A star shall come forth from Jacob. A scepter shall rise from Israel. They believe that these men of Persia, and apparently studying the writings of Balaam, might have put together two things. A scepter, a ruler, a king, and a star somewhere in the vicinity of Israel. Jacob. So, possibly, it sounds rational sometimes, it sounds logical sometimes, and we start to put together pieces and wonder, what is it that drove them to Jerusalem that day? And I like to say, it's because God sent them there. They were led by the Lord. God wanted them there. And he put it in their hearts. And how he did that, or why he did it in the way he did, I don't know. But they were led by God. They were there for a reason. And God wanted them for this definite purpose of coming to Jerusalem first. That was not an accident. God wanted them to go there. So that all that can be summed up was the simple phrase they said to Herod. Chapter 2, verse 2. Where is he that has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star in the east and have come to worship him. That's their purpose. That's what they were out for. 
When they walked into the court of Herod the king, they said, where is the king of the Jews? Can you sense tension building suddenly? Because they didn't address him as king of the Jews. He was a different kind of king. They weren't looking for him. But they were looking for one who did not gain his title by bloodshed or by fear, but one whose birthright it is to be the king of the Jews. Where is he that has been born king of the Jews? That's a testimony, by the way, of divine designation. The star in the sky marked his arrival. God himself marked the heavens and used the star to bring these men to this place. They followed the star, it said. We have seen the star in the east and have come to worship him. All these things was focused precisely on the purpose of them being there. They said, in just one phrase, we have come to worship him. Herod was a king, but they didn't come to worship him. Made him mad. There are some who give this kind of reverence to kings, I'm sure. But God's teaching about worship. You read through the text all over Scripture. Worship is not to be directed toward man. It's not to be. It's not to be directed toward idols. Does God say anything about that? Quite a bit. It's not to be directed toward angels. How many times did somebody fall in front of an angel to worship him and they say, hey, cut that out. That's my paraphrase. But get up. Nope, you don't do that. You don't worship me. I'm just a servant like you are. But God says so specifically, and I'll just give you one verse out of thousands. Deuteronomy 6.13, You shall fear only the Lord your God, and you shall worship Him and swear by His name. It's repeated often in Scripture, and God does not lead men to contradict His direction on worship. God does not do that. There is an acknowledgement here that has profound meaning. If God led the wise men by a star to find this child and worship him, and God commands that worship to go to no one else but himself, then who is this child? God said, come and worship him. What's that tell you? This child is divine. This child is divine. Let's examine that word worship just for a few minutes. Proskuneo. Great little Greek word here. I love it on vocabulary tests. It looks like so many other words that always confuses people. I don't do that on purpose. I know I've got some Greek students out here and they're now worried about that. But, uh, um, but this is one of those challenging words you say, it looks just like another word and we could easily get it wrong. But this word here, proskuneo, is to kiss like a dog licking its master's hand. And you may say, okay, what is that? Well, in the concept, it's showing reverence. It's a word for reverence or bowing down. Uh, maybe you've even seen that in movies where a servant will come in before the king and bow down before him and kiss the ring on his finger or something like that. Um, but that's the picture of this word, to prostrate himself before somebody. And ultimately, it came to the word 
worship. But worship has more depth to it than just an action. It's something from the heart. Because within the person ought to be this word we call fear. Here is a powerful person. Here is a significant being. And we're paying him homage. We're paying him respect and reverence. Even a human king is somebody you ought to be a little concerned about if they got the power of the sword and they've got an army and they've got a whole nation behind them. Yeah, you show respect in that way. You don't come before them boldly and arrogantly. Even Proverbs warns you about eating their food because you should show a sense of fear toward that. But here is what's beautiful in the whole passage. When you start talking about the Lord and you start talking about worship, and then you insert the word fear as the attitude that goes with that. It says in Proverbs 9, verse 10, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. You want to know where to start? You start where the wise men did. They went to him first. They didn't worship anybody else that we know of on the way. We don't see that. But here they said, we have come to worship him and their actions follow as we will see soon enough that they actually bow down and worship him the fear of the lord is the beginning of wisdom the magi were never never more wise than when they set their purpose to worship jesus christ that's wisdom folks that's where we should start they were not ever diverted from their purpose they landed in Jerusalem instead of Bethlehem. Yes. They spoke to Herod and, and, wasn't, uh, and knew he wasn't the king they were looking for. Yes. They listened to the scribes. Remember? They brought in all the scribes and, the, and these others who can tell them from Scripture where the Messiah was to be born. And yet when they walked back outside, what did they follow? The star. They still were following God's direction. Even after the diversion, after the king, after the scribes, uh, they didn't simply go because somebody else told them where to go. They declared, we have come to worship him. They set it as their definite purpose. Can I recommend something to you this Christmas? How about a purpose for the holiday? How about setting in your heart that you're going to worship him this year? Not just celebrate with the decorations, and I love decorations. Not just fill it with activities, of parties, and, and all the other things we like to do. But set in your heart the desire to worship Him. To make that your goal in the morning. When you get up, I, I want to spend time with my Lord. To read of His Word. To spend time in thinking, and praying, and reflection. But seeking Him. Knowing Him better. Worshipping Him. This is what J.C. Ryle wrote. And I, I enjoy his commentaries very much. Uh, but his commentary on Matthew, just the first two verses, he had this one paragraph. And I think it's something worth listening to. He says, The conduct of the wise men described in this chapter is a splendid example of spiritual diligence. What, what trouble it must have cost them to travel from their homes to the place where Jesus was born. How many weary miles they must have journeyed. The fatigues of an English or an Eastern traveler are far greater than we in England can all understand. 
Remember, he wrote back in those days. Uh, the time that such a journey would occupy must necessarily have been very great. The dangers to being encountered were neither few nor small, but none of these things moved them. They had set their hearts on seeing him who was born king of the Jews, and they never rested until they saw him. They proved to us the truth of the old saying, where there is a will, there is a way. It would be well for all professing Christians if they were more ready to follow the wise men's example. Where is our self-denial? What pains do we take about our souls? What diligence do we show about following Christ? What does our religion cost us? These are serious questions. They deserve serious consideration. Those last handful of questions is what caught my attention. For What I like to do is I like to listen to it. Believe it or not, somebody took the time to read Matthew's entire commentary by J.C. Ryle on LibriVox. And if you're one with the LibriVox app, you go to it. There's the, the ex, uh, expository uh, commentary on the book of Matthew. And it's hours and hours and hours long. It's huge. And they didn't stop with Matthew. They did it for Mark. They did it for Luke. And they did it for John, too. That probably took a whole year of somebody's life just to read all those out. Anyway, so this is what I like to do. I get up in the morning feed the cat, of course, because that's always the first thing, most important to her. Uh, then I get my coffee and I go sit down and I, I put on my little audio book and I listen to Ryle's commentary. And when I was, I thought, well, I'm going to cover Matthew this week. Let, let's just hear his commentary on Matthew again. I've listened to it before. So I pushed it on and I read, or I was listening to it and it goes through, and then it gets to those questions. And it kind of just stopped me in my tracks. Because I heard him, or the reader say, where's our self-denial? What pains do we take about our souls? What diligence do we show about following Christ? Boy, put that in our context. This guy wrote over a hundred years ago. And I think we've been pretty good about making it even more busy today. What does our religion cost us? Serious questions. That's what I looked at today, because this is where wisdom starts with us today. What does this holiday mean? Why is it on our calendar? Why is it something that we as Christians enjoy so much? Is it because we haven't had enough cantata practice? We just have to have more? Do we just want to eat? Is there anything to eat during December? <laughs> Woo! What, what is it that drives us into this? What is it that's so exciting? As a kid, I've always been excited about Christmas. So much so, I'd make myself ill thinking about it's coming. Did God go through all these unique and special arrangements for the birth of Christ to be declared to mankind that we should turn it into something that says nothing about Him. What we see today is just a small part of the wisdom 
of this event designed by God in sending His Son for us. He even had men who the world regarded as wise to be among the early proclaimers of who Jesus is. But with all that, we can learn and possibly even satisfy some questions about this passage. But this is not where I'm leaving it today when I talk about the wisdom that God has in the birth of Christ. It comes down to this, folks. He did this for you. He did all of this for you. The shepherds heard it. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. Mary heard that uh, thou shalt conceive in thy womb and bring forth a son and they shall call his name Jesus. He shall be great. He shall be called the Son of the Highest. The Lord God shall give him the throne of his father David, and he shall reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there shall be no end. And Joseph heard as well, She shall bring forth a son, and thou shalt call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. The angel proclaimed to the shepherds, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy, which shall be for all the people. And they also said, Glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace, goodwill to men. That was not merely for Jews alone. Scripture goes and shows us over and over and over. It wasn't just for the first century people. It wasn't just for shepherds. It wasn't just for these wise men. But in Galatians 4, it's declared very clearly. When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His Son, made of a woman, made under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, and then this is where I love it, that we might receive the adoption of sons. We. It doesn't say that they, but we. Suddenly it gets personal, doesn't it? I love what John did with that. When John wrote so many years later, in John, 1 John, his first epistle, chapter 2, verse 2, it's almost like he just lied this up with Matthew 2, verse 2. But John, 1 John 2, verse 2, And he is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. Who are these men that first arrived? Were they Jews? No. No, they weren't. But they came to do something directly, didn't they? We have come to worship Him. Isn't it, aren't you glad you're included in this story? In this sense, we step back and say, Wow, He came for us. He came to pay a price for us. Says the sins of the whole world. Are we sinful? Isn't it great to have a Savior? Wow! This is what the promise was. So, understand what I'm telling you today. That the wisdom of Christmas is that Jesus was sent to this earth for the very purpose of saving you and saving me of our sins. That's where it gets directly applicable to my life. Without Jesus, there is no forgiveness. There is no hope. There certainly is no peace with God. The wisest response for us 
is to understand who Jesus is and what he has done and why we bow down before him. We acknowledge that we're sinful people and that we need forgiveness of sins and recognize this fact, folks. It was declared even in the first comments the angel said, for unto you is born this day, what? A Savior. A Savior. That's why He came. That's God's wisdom. You see? That's what God's wisdom looks like. He says, My people, I've created them and they're so far from me. They can't possibly come back to me because they are so sinful and they have a debt that needs to be paid. And Jesus says, I'll pay it. I wasn't in that boardroom. But I'm sure glad that that's exactly what he did. He came. He came. He followed the Father's direction, just like wise men followed the direction of a star. He came to pay a price for us. That's why he came. Shall we put our trust in him? Who else would you trust for forgiveness of sins? Who else can be your Savior but Jesus Christ? See, the Magi came, or the wise men came, or the kings came, whatever you'd like to call them. They came with a definite purpose. We have come to worship him. Jesus came with a definite purpose that he might give his life a ransom for us all. What is our definite purpose this season in worshiping him? I'm going to challenge you with that. A few more times. All right? Spend some time this week. I'm going to ask you to do this. Go through Matthew's passage. Read through it. Verse 1 through 12. Several times. Several times. Just kind of bask in the beauty of the words. Look at what it says here. And then look for the wisdom the Lord is showing us in this passage. May all our hearts be drawn to him like they had been drawn by that star to find him. Heavenly Father, thank you. Thank you for being willing to send your Son. We never can find the words, the deepest words, to express our gratitude for that. And Lord Jesus, how could we ever just repeat thank you without a heart that's engaged to understand what you did for us in coming to a world that was so vile living in among people who were so sinful, dying on a cross which was so wicked and cruel, and yet that was your purpose, not just to die on a cross, but to die for our sins, to take the burden of our sins upon yourself, to pay that price that you knew we couldn't ever pay. But you did it. You did it for us. That we might be redeemed. That we might be forgiven. That we might have a relationship with God and peace and hope. Forgiveness. Adoption. And all these things have come to us. Scripture says you have blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenlies in Christ Jesus. And Lord, we don't even know the start of it all. But it's a treasure to us. And I pray that our response and worship of you would be adequate. It would be matching in some match. I don't know how we can say it. 
Lord, but we've got hearts that we can use to bring glory and honor to your name. We have bodies and actions and, and works that we do. May they all bring glory to your name. May the gospel message be on our tongue and quick to be shared. May this season have a purpose for us. And may it be that we have come to worship you. Guide our hearts this way, we pray. And we're going to ask it many times, but do, Lord, do your work in our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen.